Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Her beauty, as we are told, was in itself not altogether incomparable, nor such as to strike those who saw her. But converse with her had an irresistible charm, and her presence, combined with the persuasiveness of her discourse and the character which was somehow diffused about her behaviour towards others, had something stimulating about it. There was sweetness also in the tones of her voice, and her tongue, like an instrument of many strings, she could readily turn to whatever language she pleased. So that is the historian Plutarch talking about Cleopatra VII, the subject of this mini-series. And Tom, that's one of the only real descriptions that we have of Cleopatra's appearance and personality. It's not just sort of propagandistic invective. And we have a question from Dr. Dan the Bandage Man, one of our listeners, asking about Cleopatra's beauty. Because, of course, she's probably the best-known character in history for her looks. Yeah. But but what's the truth there? Do you think this is – do you think she – I mean, Plutarch says she wasn't particularly beautiful. So, so what's the, the story? Yeah, I mean, the image, the image of her, certainly in the 19th century, she, she, she becomes the, the toast of kind of symbolists and decadence. Um, and she's cast as this kind of exquisitely beautiful predatory vampiress – um, who 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 kills courtiers? Sleeps she sleeps with a, a you know a sleeps with a man every night and then kills him in the morning. All this kind of stuff. And the assumption is is that she's very very uh, sexual and she's very very beautiful. Uh, and actually, I think neither of those things are true. Yeah. Um, she seems to have been, I mean, not particularly stunningly beautiful. If you look at the coins, she she has quite a kind of hawk nose, and uh, I mean, she yeah. she doesn't look absolutely stunning. And as as Plutarch describes her. Her fascination seems to lie not in her looks so much as in her character. And I think that that's, you know, it's the um, age cannot wither her nor custom stale her infinite variety that you get in the, the, in Shakespeare's portrayal of her. And there's this wonderful um, description that Ina Barbas, who is Antony's sidekick, Ahena Barbas, Domitius Ahena Barbas, the original. Um, and he he's trying to explain to someone what it is about Cleopatra that makes her so compelling. And he has, I saw her once hop 40 paces through the public street 
and having lost her breath, she spoke and panted that she did make defect perfection. And I think that brilliantly gets yeah. something that's there in Plutarch. This sense that there is a kind of fascination that's not dependent on, you know, conventional beauty. It's just that she is a very, very compelling person. And and I think that as we, you know, we'll explore on the question of is she a massively sexual person, as far as she, as we know, she only ever slept with two men. Yeah. And both those men happen to be the most powerful men in the world. Well, they're, both the much, which, mu- they're both much older men and much yeah. more powerful men. They're both Romans. And she um, knows how to, uh, you know, she, she tailors her pres- her self-presentation yes. to, to suit what she knows about their respective characters. But do you think, even though, I mean, as we said in our first episode, everything we know about, well, well, almost everything that's written down in narrative form about Cleopatra comes from the Romans and comes from her enemies. Despite that, do you, don't you agree that you can sort of bleeding out between the gaps, you get a sense of the charisma? Absolutely. Um, so, so Plutarch, uh, he, he talks about his, I think it's his grandfather knew someone who worked at the, at the court of Cleopatra. That's right. Uh, Philotus, I think his name and, and, was, a, a, a medical student. Yes. Um, and, t- and he talks about how they're, they're, you know, that they have banquets all the time. They're constantly cooking uh, in the kitchens. Uh, and this is simply so that Cleopatra and Antony can have a banquet whenever they want. Yeah. But, but you, you do get the sense there of a living tradition. The, the romance and the power and the charisma of Cleopatra has kind of survived to be something to, to be repeated down the generations yeah. and to be reported by Plutarch 100, I think 150 years a, after. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that's such a lovely story because so many of the Roman histories, there's a sense of them adhering to formulae and, and propagandistic formulae. And that bit when Plutarch says... My grandfather knew somebody called Flotus, who was then a medical student and went to the kitchens and all that. I mean, it, 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 it's so contemporary, actually. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, it's such a lovely detail. And it's, and, and and it's all it about me- the luxury of Cleopatra's court. And I think it means that when, when Plutarch says that she had this charisma and this power, you feel that that is, you know, that, that those are authentic reports that have been handed down. And she must have had that power. Yeah, simply because of what she does, you know, the the extraordinary scale of her career. And she's very, very clever as well. So um, Plutarch says that she spoke, is it nine languages? Something like that, yeah. The language of Latin is, Latin, interestingly, is not one. The Ethiopians, the Troglodytes, the Hebrews, Arabians, Syrians, Medes, Syrians, Medes, and Parthians. And she then said, and Plutarch then says, it is said that she knew the speech of many other peoples also, although the kings of Egypt before her had not even made an effort to learn the native language. Yeah, so she's the first to speak. To speak Egyptian. To speak Egyptian. The only explanation for that, presumably, is that she's clever. I mean, she's living in, surrounded by the library and the museum yeah, and all clever, these scholars. And But I think she also, rec- you know, she, we're talking about this at the end of the previous episode. She, she is a, a, a young woman in a man's world. Uh, and she is recognizing that if she can cast herself as the image of the goddess Isis, uh, the goddess who presides over the Nile, who presides over the rhythms of life in this ancient country, then she will be able to draw on wellsprings of loyalty that yeah. her forebears camped out in Alexandria, this alien Greek city kind of attached to Egypt, had never been able to do. And that, that is exactly what happens. And she right, makes Tom. incredible play with it. Let's get, so she succeed, we, we ended the last um, episode really with her succession. She becomes Pharaoh or joint Pharaoh with her brother Ptolemy the 13th in 51 BC. 
And you promised us lots of geopolitical context because we're, we're getting into the, toward the Roman civil war, the civil war between Caesar and Pompey. Um, she has all kinds of problems, you know, in her kind of entry. So the level of the Nile is a big issue, whether there's going to be enough famine, yeah. famine, the level of taxation. Um, her father has devalued the drachma as part of his way of kind of trying to pay off all these debts and stuff. So she's also got the issue, which you alluded to before, of her brother and her brother's ministers can- conspiring against her and trying to sort of force her out. So sort of how does, yeah. how does she deal with all this? this, this I mean, it's a mess, isn't it? Her father's courtiers clearly think that uh, both of them should be puppets. It's evident that Cleopatra is not going to, to play this part. Uh, and so there are two in particular. There's a guy called Achilles, who is a military man. Yeah. And there's a guy called Pathinus, who regular listeners to the show will be pleased to know is a eunuch. Well, he's so he's the man who you see. If ever you watch a program about Cleopatra, you know, he's always the man. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know anything like that. But casting directors without fail say, get the fattest man in the <laughs> yeah, agency. Shave books. his head. <laughs> yes. And make him really sinister and simpering <laughs> and effeminate. And he, Pathenius, is always played that way, isn't he? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so Cleopatra basically gets forced out of Alexandria and she goes off with her, her younger sister, Arsinoe to try and raise troops in uh, in Syria and she comes down to uh, to Sinai and she kind of raises tribes there and there's so there's a, a town called Pelusium which is basically guards it's the the gateway to Egypt and Cleopatra is lurking beyond Pelusium with her forces and her brother Ptolemy the 13th is under the thumb of all these various sinister ministers in Alexandria and so it looks as though um, Egypt is going to erupt into civil war, but she's, but, she's blocked there, Tom. By the way, just let me yeah, she's blocked. It's, yeah. She's blocked by the army because we, in the previous episode we talked about that guy Aulus Gabinius who had recapped, and his men are still there, aren't they? The Gabinians, they're mercenaries, and sort of they they're supposedly sort of, some of them are Germans and some of them are Norsemen, and they're they're they've just been sort of hanging around in Egypt, sort of wenching falling out of taverns, <laughs> um, attacking people in the street, just making a nuisance of themselves. They're like, they're like the sort of you know, 1970s football hooligans on tour. Yes. Um, and and the, the Egyptians can't get rid of them. And they are serving in Ptolemy's army. And they're basically blocking the way at Pelusium. Yeah. So she can't get past yeah. into, the, into Egypt. So, so that's the, st- the situation in Egypt. It's kind of incipient civil war. But that is very much a sideshow for what meanwhile is going on in the broader Mediterranean, which is that Julius Caesar has crossed the Rubicon. And if you want the background to that, we've done two episodes on, on the build-up to Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Pompey has taken command of what he sees as the kind of the constitutional legitimate uh, role. Um, he stands at the head of, of the vast majority of the Senate. They have fled Rome. They've crossed the um, the Adriatic. They've come gone to Greece. Caesar has made sure of Spain. He's made sure of Italy. He then crosses with his fleet to Greece. He's vastly outnumbered. He ends up meeting with Pompey's armies um, at a place called Pharsalus. And against the odds, he beats Pompey. Why does he beat Pompey, Tom, just very quickly? He's a better general. He's 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 a cleverer, subtler general. Uh, Pompey is overconfident. Yeah. Um, and Caesar is at the head of men who have been following him for, for years and years, who have absolute confidence in him, whose morale is sky high, who believe that they can do anything. Uh, Pompey is very much kind of resting on his laurels. He's drawing on a reputation by, that by this point is a decade and more old. 
and he mm. doesn't have the legions to hand. So he had, you know, this had been pointed out to him in the build-up to the Rubicon, and Pompey had said, well, I just have to stamp my foot, and legions will emerge from, from out of the soil of Italy. But it didn't work like that. You know, Caesar's legions are just too proficient. Caesar is too, you know, they're too battle-honed. And so Pompey loses, he, is, he flees the battlefield, and he then has to decide, well, what am I going to do? And because he he is the great conqueror of the East, he is the man who had brought much of the Near East under Roman power, who has kings across the Near East as his clients. He assumes that he can draw on them. And so he thinks, well, who is the most, who is the richest, who is the most useful of these royal clients? It's the king of Egypt. Yeah. And so he decides he will go to Egypt. He will go to Alexandria. He will throw his weight around. He will pull rank and he will get enough money to raise money, to, to raise troops, to go and have another crack at Caesar. So and that's that not plan. that's not a bad stratagem when you think about it, is it? He's lost Pharsalus, but he knows that the Egyptians owe him because he'd always been very close to Aulites, Cleopatra's father. He knows that Egypt is torn apart by this incipient civil war, so he can kind of go in as the strong man. And basically, he he knows there's a boy king. Yeah. So Pompey just kind of thinks, well, yeah. this is this is great. He, but he, unfortunately, he, he is the strong man. He sees himself as a strong man. It never crosses his mind that the fact yeah. that he's lost means that suddenly his image is no longer that of a strong man, but of an absolute loser. So there's this famous scene, isn't there, where um, so Ptolemy the Thirteenth, the boy king, Cleopatra is still out there in the sort of the edge of the beyond Pelusium. Yeah. Um, the boy king's ministers they have this meeting and they say, "What are we going to do? Pompey's coming." And supposedly there's a guy who's his tutor, Theodotus of Chios, I think it is, Tom, um, who I describe it in my book as, a, as an oily man. Uh, <laughs> Not dealing in stereotypes. No, but, well, he behaves in a very – I don't know anything about Chios. I mean, they may be very unoily for all I know. But uh, he behaves in a very oily way because he basically says, well, you know, if we accept Pompey, we make ourselves Julius Caesar's enemies, and Pompey will just boss us around and be a pain. If we turn him away – he will be our enemy, and if he then wins, we're in a mess. And he says, and the quote is, you know, there's only one way to please Caesar and have nothing to fear from Pompey. And he says, and that is, welcome Pompey and kill him. For as we all know, dead men don't bite, which is such a fantastic, um, such a fantastic line. And then there's this incredible scene, isn't there, where Pompey, who is, as you say, this, this ancient war hero, he pitches up on his boat. They send a little fishing boat to greet him. The fishing boat has um, Achilles on, who is Ptolemy's commander, um, and an old old associate of Pompey's called Lucius Septimius, who sort of says, um, well, he doesn't say anything at first, and Pompey says to him, don't I recognize you? Didn't you used to be an old comrade of mine? Septimius says yes, and they they. They sail back towards the coast. And Pompey's got his speech with him that he's going to read to um, to Ptolemy the Thirteenth. This sort of speech of welcome, and it's while he's reading it, I think, that they they begin to pull their knives out of the out of the scabbards. And then, just as they're approaching the shore, as he can see the boy king on the beach, surrounded by the the oily tutor, and the, <laughs> the fleshy eunuch, and all these other, all these all other these, stereotypes, all these other characters. They cut Pompey's head off. They what do. a twist. What a twist. Do you think um, that's do you think Pompey was hard done by there, Tom? I think he had it coming. You think he had it coming? Well, I know I'll tell you who hard. else thought I I'll tell you who else thought he had it coming. Um, were the Jews. Because Pompey had uh captured Jerusalem and the temple 
And of course, no non-Jew was allowed to go into the temple, but Pompey went in and he went right into the Holy of Holies. Oh, and the wow. Jews said that from that point on, everything started going wrong for him. Yeah. Uh, and when the news um, came out that he'd been, uh, he'd been beheaded, um, Jewish poets hailed this as um, the victory of God over the pride of the dragon and said of Pompey that he had failed to recognize that God alone is great. Wow. So you can see how, how this, yeah. this stuff reverberates you know, and it's interpreted in all kinds of different ways by different peoples. Um, you know, this is huge, huge stuff. Uh, so, and of course, the, the the people with whom it reverberates most of all are the Romans, yeah. and specifically Julius Caesar, who's come with a very, very light force. So not a large number of men at all in pursuit. And he turns up uh, in Alexandria and he is presented with Pompey's head on a, yeah. a kind of silver salver. And Caesar, Caesar affects to weep. <laughs> I mean, maybe he did. We don't know. So here's the fascinating thing. So Caesar has come in pursuit of Pompey. He gets to Alexandria, you know, this, this sort of strange semi-colony, I guess, or semi-detached colony or whatever you want to call it, on the fringe of the Roman sort of the Roman Imperium. But, the, you know, the greatest city in the world. I mean, it's larger at this point than Rome. The richest city, exactly, the richest city in the world. So Caesar arrives. It's the first time he's been to Alexandria, um, this Greek city. He gets off his boat. All these people are there. They say, here's the head of your enemy. We've cut it off for you. And yeah, famously, Tom, he starts crying and says, oh, what a terrible shame that he was a Roman. <laughs> but he's obviously secretly incredibly relieved. Do you think, or do you, th so how seriously does Caesar take this business, this ideological business of he's a Roman, how dare you cut his head off? I, I think that he feels genuine grief because the men had been close. I think that as a Roman, he thinks it's outrageous that as great a figure as Pompey has been dispatched by people you may well describe as fleshy and oily i mean i'm you know because that's those are absolutely the terms in which romans regard sinister kind of hellenistic greeks tom i think beheading people on boats is poor form i'm not going to apologize for dissing theodotus you know the shrewdest political player one of the shrewdest who's ever lived of course he understands that this is a godsend because pompey has been removed you know cleared from the chessboard and he's not responsible. Well, Tom, here's the thing. You talk about Caesar's shrewdness. So Julius Caesar, we talked about him in the Rubicon podcasts. He's this incredibly experienced, shrewd, cunning, ruthless commander. And now he does something quite odd. So he takes his small force, as you said, and he basically says, let's go to the palace quarter. Let's occupy the palace quarter and establish ourselves there. Even though the Alexandrian crowd are absolutely furious to see him, and clearly the mood of the city is very much against him. And he sort of barricades himself into this, into this sort of well, compound. Not. Why? Well, it, not only that, but he behaves absolutely as a kind of plenipotentiary. He summons both Ptolemy Thirteenth and Cleopatra yeah. into his presence. And he is going to decide which of them should rule and what the ordering of Egypt should be. And I think the reason that he, he does this, well, he needs the money. He also has a civil troops. war. He has a civil war to continue fighting. Um, yep. You know, he's defeated Pompey, but there are plenty of people out there who want to continue the fight against him. So Egypt is very rich and he wants to do what um, Romans have always done, which is to screw money out of, you know, their hapless underlings. And Caesar claims to be owed money back from, you know, from the, the, the days when um, Ptolemy Aletes, Cleopatra's father, had been handing out bribes in Rome. Caesar had scooped up a lot and he claimed to be owed even more. So I think that's the reason. The, the question is, why does he do this when he has so few people and mm -hmm. I th at his back? And I think it's just that he's overconfident. And right. I think that the, the corollary of that, I think, he, I think that he, 
he takes the kind of the, the Roman stereotyping of Egyptians, literally. He thinks these are effeminate, sinister, decadent, inbred, corrupt people who are simply not worthy of, you know, I don't even need to show them the respect of worrying about what they might do. So, you know, these are not ghouls. He's Vladimir Putin on the night of the 25th of February. Yes. And, and the, the truth is that, you know, Caesar fights an enormous number of campaigns over the course of his career. What happens in Alexandria? He comes closest to being defeated and destroyed closer than at any point in his career. That's a brilliant story in itself. And we'll get to it in a second. But Cleopatra, we left her. She's got her little army. They're out sort of by the Delta, desperate to get past Pelusium, this fortress and this army to Alexandria. And they can't, she can't get there. He's summoned her, but she can't get there. Now, Tom, let's take a break and find out what she does and whether or not it involves a carpet. carpet. <laughs> let's do that. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. It was night in Alexandria. Darkness had fallen over the greatest city on earth, a black veil of baleful silence. Soldiers patrolled the walls of the palace, spears in hand. It was the late summer of 48 BC, and Alexandria was a city on edge, a powder keg waiting for a spark. In the inky waters of the harbour, a battered little fishing boat rounded the corner and eased towards the shore. Keeping clear of the beam from the great lighthouse, the oarsman pulled into the quayside, Working swiftly, he made fast to the jetty before clambering up the ladder, a bulky bundle on his back. A carpet? A sack? In the darkness, it was impossible to be sure. So Tom Holland, that was a reading from a fantastic new <laughs> uh, children's history of Cleopatra, which the listeners will not need me to recommend because they've already bought it, Adventures in Time, Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile, by myself. But Tom... Uh, is Cleopatra in that bag? Well, so we, we left her, didn't we? 
um, at the head of her rag bag of Syrian mercenaries and um, tribesmen from the Sinai Desert at Pelusium. And Caesar has summoned her and, and Cleopatra knows that she has to get to Caesar somehow. Um, and so we have this story that's told in Plutarch, although not interestingly in Cassius Dyer, who's a, a, a later historian of this period, uh, well, actually a historian of the whole of Rome, but he, he writes about this period and he, he, he does not include this story. So that might raise eyebrows, but I think it's true. Yeah, I, you do. Plutarch, Plutarch is nearer in time. And the reason I think it's true is that it's true to Cleopatra's character and it's true to Caesar's character. It's the theatricality so, of it that is the key, isn't it? So, so, so the, the tradition is, is that presumably Cleopatra kind of goes down, she, she, she sneaks past, she goes down the Nile, she brought up the Nile to Alexandria and then smuggled in, in what is traditionally described as a carpet. But that's a, a 19th century translation yeah. of Plutarch. It, it wasn't a carpet. It's probably um, a linen bag or something, a laundry yeah, it was, bag. It's it a kind kind of bag for carrying bed linen or maybe even a, 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 a you know, matting bed roll, something like that. But the story is, is that it, this gets brought into Caesar's presence and Cleopatra kind of emerges yeah. either from the be- the roll or from the bag or whatever. Um, and people have said, well, this wouldn't have happened because she was incredibly conscious of her dignity. She would, you know, she would never introduce herself like this. And that's true. Of course, Cleopatra has an incredible sense of her dignity. But more than that, she has an understanding of what makes people she wants to impress tick. Yeah. And she, she, she will have studied Caesar and she will have appreciated that he's an intelligent man with a taste for the kind of stunt that she's about to pull. And I think that it's evident that Caesar immediately he loves takes it, Cleopatra's he? side. Yeah. In his long years of adventure, Julius Caesar had seen many things, but this was something beyond even his experience. The woman smiled. Greetings, Commander, she said sweetly. I am Cleopatra. Brilliant, Dominic. I'm sure it was exactly like, I mean, the problem is, is that Caesar himself, so in the commentaries that Caesar writes and that are then after his murder written up by his, um, by his lieutenants, Caesar barely mentions Cleopatra. Shocking. Just as he doesn't mention the Rubicon, crossing the Rubicon either in his commentaries, you know, there is, there are certain things that he doesn't want to draw attention to, and he doesn't want to draw attention to his, his relationship with Cleopatra. Equally, of course, Cleopatra does because, Very, very rapidly, Cleopatra gets pregnant. And we, we can only assume that this is absolutely deliberate on both the parts of both of them. Well, let's just pause a second. She's about 21. Um, he is 52. So that's quite an age gap. But is it, pl- I mean, it's obviously not a love affair, but it's, it, you know, she's 21. She's presumably reasonably attractive, at least. Um, you know, Plutarch in his description, he doesn't say, he says she's not astoundingly beautiful, but he doesn't say, you know, she's not going to drive you running out of the room. Yeah. Um, Julius Caesar has an eye for the ladies anyway, doesn't yeah, he's he? He's notorious I mean, for it. He's a, he's, he's yeah. a, he's a sort of bad boy. Yeah. So, and she knows, so he's the first man that she's, he's her first boyfriend, as it were. Yeah. Um, and she's not approaching this as this sort of, I mean, there's this line that her brother's ministers put about that she's captured the old man by magic, but she must know exactly. I mean, she's doing this politically, right? It's not a romance. I think. I think that they must. They must. There must have been an attraction between them. They obviously both liked each other. Yeah, uh, and in a way, the whole kind of coming out of a sack stunt is Cleopatra's tribute to to, to what a you know what an amusing and, and and smart guy Caesar is. 
Right. So I think there's absolutely that dimension. But there's something, you know, both of them have a kind of mutuality of interests because Caesar suddenly realizes that he's surrounded by a howling mob. And um, so Achilles, the, the Ptolemy Thirteenth general, is on the outside. Um, Pathinus is, is inside. But he realizes that probably the best bet is to get rid of Ptolemy Thirteenth, put Cleopatra as a puppet. And if he can get Cleopatra pregnant and, you know, establish a dynasty, then that's brilliant because that gets around the whole problem of, um, of, of what his relationship to Egypt should be. Because if, if his son is ruling Egypt, then obviously that's great. I mean, that cuts through yeah. the whole Gordian knot of what the constitutional proprieties should be for a Republican general. Although, of course, that's a problem in Rome, isn't it? Caesar well, is married already to Calpurnia. It, it, it will be, but I don't think that that unduly worries him because there point. are many different ways of kind of spinning this yeah. equally for cleopatra she has clearly decided that caesar is you know is going to is the guy to back she doesn't really have any option but to do that um and if she can establish a dynastic link to the guy who may well end up ruling rome then obviously that's brilliant for her and yeah. of course her primary object at this point is to is to get rid of her brother so so we're in late 48 bc pompey is dead they are in the sort of palace quarter of Alexandria in this sort of – it's this sort of walled compound, I guess, or at least they've put up barricades or something. Yeah, so stop it serves the, as a fortress. To stop the, the, the population breaking in and Achilles's army. And then, I mean, you said earlier um, this really interesting thing that this is the closest that Julius Caesar comes in his entire military career to disaster because he's got the small force they're besieged because the siege goes on for basically it's about six months or so isn't it yeah and he's stuck there and he doesn't know what's going on in the broader strategic yeah sphere of the mediterranean i mean he's got all those enemies out there it's a disaster for him and at one point he has to burn he has to burn his own fleet to stop the enemy getting hold of it in the course of that they accidentally burned down part of the Great Library. I mean, this is one it, of the... Yeah, hugely. Of, or is this an urban myth, Tom? Mm. Historians it's, it's, are divided about this, aren't they? It's much, much debated. I think we should do an episode on the Library of Alexandria. It's an incredibly complicated but fascinating story. Yeah. And the mysteries that surround it are part of the fascination. So, um, it's But it's possible anyway that part of it was possible, destroyed. Yeah. Um, then, and this incredibly com- convoluted story. So at, at one point, they're there in the palace. There's Caesar. There's Ptolemy the Thirteenth. There is Cleopatra. Pothinus. and Yes. And there is her younger sister, Arsinoe. Yes, who's a baggage. <laughs> well, she's a teenager, isn't she? She must be about 18 or 19. Yeah, she's, ter- she's terrible. But is she, though, Tom? So what Arsinoe does, Arsinoe basically breaks <laughs> out of the, the palace with her tutor, who's called Ganymede, and they then go and join the rioters, and she sets herself up as a rival, doesn't she? Yeah. So she's obviously a few, incredibly jealous of her. She is the Prince Harry of that she's family. She's the Princess Margaret. She's the Princess, yeah, the Princess Margaret. Margaret. <laughs> right. Well, anyway. They're all awful. They're all murderous. I always kind of think of her as the, the archetype of the, the awful little sister who's kind of jealous of the, the high-achieving yeah. elder sister, resentful and jealous, and always trying to kind of stab her in the back and ruin things for her. So she's got out, but then Ptolemy, he says, um, let me go and talk to them. You know, I, I, and he says to Julius Caesar, I've learned so much from you. I, I think you're such a tremendous fellow. I really respect you. Please let me go outside and reason with the rioters. And he goes out to reason with them, but then he sort of turns around and says, I hate you. I'm poo face. Yeah. And he joins them as well. So now it's just Caesar and Cleopatra left in the palace. But Caesar's executed Pothinus. Yes, he's executed Pothinus with his men. 
and they're trapped and everybody is against them. And there's always the, all this sort of the, all these strange stories about they they poison the water supply or they put salt or something. In the Caesar water loses his um, his red general's cloak. Yeah, Caesar goes out to to do some stuff in the harbor and is almost yeah. caught and killed. And actually, he's bailed out, isn't he, by a by a relief army? I mean, he doesn't actually led win the by, day. Yeah, but led led by a, a a kind of Greek potentate, Mithridates of Pergamon. Which right. Is, you know, mildly humiliating, but Caesar doesn't care because. Uh, essentially that that enables him to to redeem the situation and ptolemy the 13th ends up drowned and cleopatra is now kind of secure so she then marries her youngest brother who becomes ptolemy the 14th as if we hadn't got enough ptolemies already (laughs) another one (laughs) another one um and Caesar and Cleopatra go on a, a barge, it said, and they kind of go on a trip down the Nile. Well, this is number... So we've had the carpet, and this is probably the next great set piece in the sort of Hollywood version of Cleopatra's life, isn't it? So they go on this cruise, one of probably history's most famous cruise. Yeah, down, probably, the, yeah. They, so they go on this sort of Nile cruise, and they look at the pyramids and inspect wildlife. And, and actually, historians <laughs> yeah. have always said, what on earth is Julius Caesar doing? He's meant to be fighting a civil war. And he's sort of gone off on this pleasure barge um, up the Nile. So what do you think is going on there, Tom? I think that that Caesar is buying into Cleopatra's idea of a a dynasty that will be properly rooted in the affections of the Egyptians. Yeah. And I think he's playing his part in that. So Cleopatra going down the Nile, which is the source of life in Egypt, and she is claiming to be the goddess who manifests herself the giver of of life, the giver of fertility. Uh, That's what she's doing. She's presenting herself to her people as an an authentically Egyptian pharaoh. So Caesar is buying into that. um, And this is why he he can't mention it in his commentaries, because basically he's recognized in, you know, he's recognized in these kind of dynastic links that he can have with Cleopatra, that it's a form of power that is not available to any other Roman. Yeah. simply because of his circumstances. So I think that's what he's doing. It's something he absolutely wants to keep quiet. He's not going to trumpet it in Rome because, you know, no one would approve. But, you know, if if his son comes to be accepted as a pharaoh ruling in association with her mother, then that is a massive, massive asset yeah. for Caesar. And so he establishes that. And then having done that, he sails off, comes, sees, conquers uh, this is, you know, Veni Vidi Vici. This is because he goes off to Asia Minor, doesn't he? Yeah, he, and gets that. Then he he defeats all his various Republican enemies. He goes back to Rome um, and he celebrates various triumphs. And among these triumphs is he celebrates an Egyptian triumph. And in the triumph, he leads Cleopatra's younger sister, yeah, the young Arsinoe. Um, yeah. And this isn't popular. The Roman people don't like seeing her led in chains. Yeah, because they cheer her or they applaud her or something. They applaud her. Yeah. So yeah. um and Cleopatra so Cleopatra is now unchallenged. She has a younger a much younger brother who is now her husband, Ptolemy the yeah. 14th. Um she's she has given birth in June 47 to a son um who she calls Ptolemy Caesar. So it's completely upfront. Yeah. that this is Julius and Caesar doesn't acknowledge the child. No. But the but. name is the giveaway. <laughs> But Caesar does invite her to Rome. Well, I was and about so she to say. Comes, so she comes to Rome with her husband, who is also her brother. Yeah. And it's all very, very un-Roman. <laughs> so Caesar puts them <laughs> so, up, doesn't he, in his estate, in tra- what's now Trastevere, across yeah. the Tiber. Yeah. Um, and is she there, Tom, do you think, to see? Because historians are not quite sure of the dates, but do you think she was there to see his triumphs? 
Do you think would that be plausible? interesting to know? Isn't it? It's interesting to know if, whether she put um, Caesar up to having her sister. Yeah, <laughs> led in. The, I mean, so, so I in a way, does it, she she gets spared and I think gets settled at Ephesus, isn't it? After the after the triumph, but Cleopatra certainly um, she kind of beds down and is very grand dame. And Cicero, the great orator, um, great kind of intellectual, she he, he's terribly resentful of her. So, he so, so Alexandria is actually the only place that Cicero said he wanted to visit apart from Rome. Is that so, so? You know, he was a he. He said Alexandria is the one place I want to visit, but he goes to see Cleopatra and gets snubbed by her. And so he's he's very he well he obviously there's some source isn't there where he writes he says I hate the queen I hate yeah. her <laughs> yes. um, do you know what do you want yes. do you want to know how where our top children's book describes Cicero from Cleopatra's point of view yeah I'd love to hear that yeah a jowly toad faced man smooth and silver tongued <laughs> but monstrously vain and pompous yeah well nothing wrong with being monstrously vain and pompous <laughs> <laughs> so, so so Cleopatra's there with Caesarian her her son her young son and her brother who is her husband it's all it's all very yeah. odd and they come and go a little bit don't they tom in the next couple of years are they sort of she's there in 46 bc and then she's there again when you know we're jumping ahead when caesar finally gets the really does get the boot she is and and then she has she she basically you know rome is obviously no place for her yeah um after her protector is dead and so she flees back to alexandria so there's obviously during the, this whole period, Caesar has won the civil war. There is this sort of mounting tension in Rome, this sense that he's going to set himself up as a king and all this sort of business. You know, he's too powerful. He's too domineering. And do you think her presence is part of that? Yeah, I do. So no one's quite sure what Caesar's going to do. I don't think Caesar knows what he's going to do. So he's planning to go on a, 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 and attack Parthia, which is the great empire, the only real kind of empire that it, that survives as a rival to Rome to Rome uh, and I think he's going there basically because he's not quite sure what to do but it's evident I think that the the kind of dynastic model of rulership that um the Ptolemies re- represent the kind of Hellenistic tradition of uh of, of of monarchical rule is of interest to Caesar uh, he knows that the Romans would never accept it because it's a republic and the, the, the name king is absolutely dirty to them. But I think it's kind of hovering there as something that he is tempted to make play with. And I think that Cleopatra's presence in Rome is a kind of marker of that. And to that extent, encourages the assassins who end up murdering him on the, the Ides of March, which yeah. is why Cleopatra has no stake at all in staying in Rome after Caesar murdered. And when he's when he's dead, she, you know, she goes skedaddling back to alexandria as fast as she can go so back she goes to alexandria the, where she kills ptolemy the fourth, yeah the 14th so that's him gone and now she's ruling with caesarian who is what three or something um so why does she kill her brother that's a really i mean that's the most in all her career that's probably the single most ruthless and sort of jarring thing that she does she kills it's her. It's not jarring. Uh, it's absolutely or jarring to modern know, sensibilities, Tom. She, I mean, murdering she your wants brother to is. Rule. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, you know, her ambition is to rule, and not just to rule, but to reconstitute the Ptolemaic Empire. Yeah, to, to to take it back to its former state of greatness. She can. She can't do that if she has a kind of little brother breathing down her neck, because that little brother will become 
the the thing of rivals to her. Well, they, so the equivalents of the, people like Achilles and Pathinus yeah. will take will will use him as a cipher to strike back at her. And whereas whereas her her own son obviously will be massively under her thumb. And don't so of you course think she's going to get rid of that him. The situation in Rome makes it all the more imperative to do that because her protector in Rome is dead. Yeah, the Roman world is slipping into civil war, so the presence of an alternative, you know, is. She can't afford to have him hanging around. I mean, I said it was jarring. It's not jarring to anybody who knows the history of the Ptolemaic dynasty, because obviously the lesson of Ptolemaic history is you you do it and you're right to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Cleopatra killed him and she was right to kill him. Yeah. Of it was course. the only sane thing to do. It was the only sane because, thing Because, of course, she is back in Egypt. But meanwhile, as in her early the early years of her reign, so now the context for what she is doing in Egypt is set by the the threat of civil war in Rome and by extension, the whole of the Mediterranean. And that is the context for what I think should be episode three. Uh, I think we should, we should halt now yeah. and episode three, we should look at what happens um, with the civil war between Caesar's assassins and Caesar's avengers and the Roman leaders who emerge from that and what their relationship to Cleopatra is. Excellent. So if you're part of the rest is history club, you can go straight to episode three right now. If you're not, uh, you can either sign up at restishistorypod.com or you'll have to wait until whenever it is that we release episode three. Um, but uh, we will see you then for more Cleopatra-based action. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.